Last week we began a series of, of lessons on the Sabbath day, uh, and uh, we're thankful for the Lord to give uh, for giving us that um, this day for us to worship Him, and that we are using the confession to do that. But before we get there, before we get to this lesson, I would like to read to you, and you can follow along, how the Puritan <coughs> pastor Thomas Watson viewed the Sabbath. This is from his book titled The Ten, Commandment, uh, the Ten Commandments. He has three volumes that are commentaries on the Shorter Catechism, the, uh, the first one called The Body of Divinity, the next one called The Ten Commandments, and the last one called The Lord's Prayer, the three different parts of the uh, catechism, the shorter catechism. These, those were sermons that he preached Sunday afternoon. They had morning and afternoon service at his church. And uh, he says this concerning the Sabbath. The business of, the, of weekdays makes us forgetful of God in our souls. The Sabbath brings him back to our remembrance. When the falling dust of the world has clogged the wheels of our affections, that they can scarce move towards God, the Sabbath comes and oils the wheels of our affections and they move swiftly on. God has appointed the Sabbath for this end. On this day, the thoughts rise to heaven, the tongue speaks of God and is as the pen of a ready writer. The eyes drop tears and the soul burns in love. The heart which all the week was frozen on the Sabbath, melts with the word. The Sabbath is a friend to religion. It files off the rust of our graces. It is a spiritual jubilee, wherein the soul is set to converse with its maker. And we, talking about the Sabbath seems so foreign um, in the evangelical world today in the United States. And yet... Uh, when this was written, so we talk about the 1600s, uh, middle 1600s, in the English-speaking world, that had become, that was the standard position. This, is, this was nearly universally uh, held. The, so when we talk about the Sabbath, we're not talking about uh, something that's new to the church in its history. We're not talking about something that's cultish. Ooh, that this church may be a cult because they hold on to the Sabbath. No, it's actually just the teaching of the Bible uh, that we uh, endeavor to follow here. And we're using chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our standard of faith, uh, to guide us as we study this subject. And as we talked talk last week, chapter 21 starts by talking about the, the worship of God on the Lord's Day and then goes into the Sabbath. So we've been dealing with those preliminary paragraphs in which the worship of God is taught uh, because it's proper for us before we get to the, the Sabbath. And we got the point where we're talking about the ordinary worship of God, what we do on the Lord's Day, what we do in private uh, worship, so public and private worship. I think we're on page 861 to him. Is that it, Amy? So uh, if you want to follow along of the confession, you can find on page 861 of the hymnal using the little numbers on the bottom instead of the big numbers on top. That's chapter 21. And uh, we're looking at um, paragraph, I think it's paragraph 6. Does it match the reading of the scriptures? 
That's five. So paragraph five, page eight sixty. So, the confession says this: the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word. Conscionable is important; means that you're actually awake. No, that your your conscience is engaged. Your reason is engaged in in that. Conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, besides religious oaths and vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgiving upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. So you can see that this paragraph lists what we do every week and then what might happen every once in a while as well. The, the, the ordinary and then the irregular. And irregular doesn't mean wrong. It means just not regularly uh, done as in vows and oaths and thanksgivings and so on. And it lists, lists several things there if, uh, as far as the ordinary worship of God. The reading of the word of God as part of the worship of God. So that's why in our, in our service we have, we read the Bible. Uh, it's not just a pregame show for the sermon. It's actually a part of worshiping God. Reading the Bible is worshiping God. In Revelation chapter 1, John says, Blessed is he who reads the word, he who reads singular, and those who hear the reading of the word. So there's this blessing that comes from the reading of God's Word and from hearing God's Word read in the service. Everything we do means something, right? If you look at the bulletin, um, we separate as different, two different item, line items, the reading of the Word and then the preaching of the Word. There are two lines, two different elements of worship there because they're equally important. But this paragraph also lists the preaching of the Word as part of the worship service. So both the proclamation and the hearing of the proclamation of God's word is part of worship to God. As a matter of fact, this is central to corporate worship. The Apostle Paul told us that it is the foolishness of the message preached. Something that's foolish to those that are perishing, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. And here he used the word being, you know, we tend to use the word salvation very specifically for that moment in which we put our faith in Christ, and from that moment we're going to go to heaven if we die. That's not how the New Testament used the word salvation. It's used to, to talk about the whole process. From the moment that God changes our heart, so we call new birth or regeneration, to the moment that we're glorified. That word is used differently, and the, the context has to tell us here. So here Paul talks about the preaching of the word, to those of us who are being saved, that is, those that are being sanctified to become more and more like Jesus Christ, is a, is a power of God, is a glorious thing. So as, as the word is preached, and as we hear the word preached, we are worshiping God. It's not just teaching time. It's not just something that you can do in Sunday school. No, it's, it's, there's a, a, an act of worship as the word of God is proclaimed. And as you hear, as important as are the other elements of true worship, we have to remember that faith comes from the hearing of God's Word. And not just that initial faith, but the continu- continuing faith comes through the um, hearing of God's Word, as Paul says in Romans 10. 
our larger catechism is really important as well as we study what the Bible teaches and, and, this, and we want to see in organized fashion the teachings of the scriptures. And in question 154, the larger catechism asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his redemption, mediation? And it answers, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to this church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made factual to the elect for their salvation. So uh, we, the word of God is central because it is what communicates to us the benefit of God's, uh, of Christ's mediation, of Christ's work on our behalf, of his, of his current work on our behalf. Question 55 asks, how is, 155, why is the word made effectual salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, the effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners. So again, not just that first initial coming to faith, but the continuing faith comes through the preaching of God's word as an act of worship. Any questions on that? Right, the, the, the paragraph then continues, uh, paragraph 5 there of chapter 21, that singing, singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are also, is also an act of worship. And I think that most people tend to see. As a matter of fact, they, a lot of people tend to think that's the only act of worship is singing. Uh, if you uh, go to a lot of different churches, you're going to have the time of worship and then the preaching, which means singing for a while and then the preaching. Um, and so that's, that's true. Singing is worship, as it is the other elements of worship as well. Do you notice the confession there in, chapter, in paragraph 5 mentions only psalms, or the singing of psalms? And some have argued that uh, if you're going to be faithful to the confession, you're only going to sing psalms in the worship service. Uh, the, the problem with that is that the, the, the Westminster Assembly also, the, those that, the men that wrote this, also came up with a Psalter. And in the Psalter, they include other biblical texts besides the Psalms. The Ten Commandments are included in the Psalter, the, the, the Magnificat or the Song of Mary. Other, other texts are also included in that Psalter, which then tells us that when they, say the word, they use the word Psalm, they did not use it in a, in a very technical way, but just the idea of songs. That's all that, that he, they meant uh, there. That's also true if you look at the practice of the men who were part of the assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession. In their practice, they also had other biblical texts included in their worship service. It's true that they didn't sing hymns like we think of hymns, but they sang different texts of the Bible besides just the Psalms, 150 Psalms, Therefore, we have to take that into account when we interpret what they mean by, the, by singing psalms. Any questions on that? The Bible doesn't command the church to sing only psalms. I think that's important for us to, to understand and to keep in mind. You know, there's a, you know, some Reformed and Presbyterian churches that teach that. I was, as you know, this past week I was at the, the meeting of the North, North American Presbyterian Reformed Council in Atlanta, Georgia. So a meeting of about 15 denominations representing about a million uh, Reformed Bible-believing Christians. And there are a few denominations in that, in that group that believe that you should sing only psalms. Uh, um, well, 
the Bible doesn't teach that. Um, the Old Testament church did not sing only psalms. You have the, Moses, the Song of Moses being, being sung corporately as, as a form of worship, as commanded in Deuteronomy. You have the Song of Mary, you have the Song of Mary, you have the Song of Deborah. These are all songs that the, 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 the Old Testament church sang. And it can't be established from, it cannot be established from apostolic practice that the apostolic church sang psalms only. You know, for a fact that in, this is not a corporate worship service, but Paul and Silas at midnight while in jail were singing um, hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to it. Now, that's not a church service, but it tells us that there was a practice of singing hymns among believers. The book of Revelation records a new song that the saints are singing in heaven. It tells us that new, new saints in heaven will be singing new songs. Also, we see that the New Testament, there are various passages in the New Testament that are metered, which, uh, meaning that you could sing them in Greek. Um, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is one of them. All the passages, in the, there are five uh, uh, passages in the pastoral epistles, so in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that have the tag, this is a faithful saying. Those are also metered. Uh, in Colossians, uh, there is a passage like that too, and which most scholars think that Paul was availing himself of known early hymns in the church to remind the believers what they believed. And so you have that evidence there as well. And then Paul, at least twice, does say to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You know, some tend to argue that those are three divisions in the Psalter, in the, in the, in the book of Psalms, but it's really hard. There's no first century evidence to tell us that the Jews ever divided the Psalms, really, in those three sections. So um, it, it has to be imposed into the text there. Any questions on that? So we sing, we sing Psalms here. We sing hymns, we sing other uh, good Christian songs as well, um, believing that uh, we're faithful to the Lord in doing that. Any questions on that? All right. <clears throat> the chapter continues saying that in ordinary worship, we also administer the sacraments. Now, we're going to not spend a, ton, a lot of time on the sacraments because you can go to chapters 28 and 29 of the Confession and read about them. But there are only two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christ instituted them both. In Matthew 8, 28, Christ tells us that we're to make disciples by baptizing them. In 1 Corinthians 11, we have Christ instituting, uh, Paul say, telling us that Christ instituted the Lord's Supper for us to, to practice there as well. So the sacraments are acts of worship. So, and it's easy to see that in the, in the, in, in, um, the Lord's Supper because we all do it, right? We all participate in it. But it's also an act of worship of, by all of us when one person gets baptized. We are all worshiping God together as that one person is baptized. And that's something to keep in mind. That's not just a, we're just not witnessing something. We're actually worshiping God as that person is baptized. Any question on that? Yes, Rick. Baptist, or uh, the Lord's Supper referred to what uh, Paul is, is, is mentioned in the first institute, or the 
It's, yes, Paul is relating what Jesus did at the Last Supper. The thing is that 1 Corinthians was written first, then Mark, then Luke and Matthew. So those, those are the earliest words that we have concerning the institution of the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, and then the, the, he continues by saying that church discipline is an ordinary means of worship. And not in, uh, in uh, chapter, uh, blah, blah, sorry. Maybe that made more sense than anything else I said. Uh, but uh, <laughs> we, we don't think of church discipline as an act of worship, but it is. And that's why our Constitution demands that if somebody's going to be suspended or excommunicated, that they be announced on the Lord's Day doing a service. Can't be via email or letter. Can't be just on a Wednesday night. It's on the instituted worship of God that those things are communicated. The same way that we admit people into membership, it's ceremonially at least, in the Lord's Day, because that's also part of church discipline, being in subjection to the church. Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism Question 108 specifically says that when it's discussing the second commandment. The second commandment is to not have is do not, do not make any graven, Im, graven images and worship those images. And he says that the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word, particularly prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration and receiving of the sacraments, church government, and discipline. He says that's part of Worship in God properly is, is exercising those things. And notice the next clause, it adds one element of worship that's not in chapter 20 of the Confession. The ministry and maintenance thereof. So ministry and maintenance of the ministry, serving and what needs to be done in order to provide for that service is also part of the worship of God. That's the idea of taking an offering in the service. So we take an offer offering during the service as an act of worship. It's not because it's convenient, because actually it's, um, it feels like dead time, doesn't it? Is that a more efficient way to collect money? Can you send the deacons down with a credit card machine? You know? uh, or should just do, do it online, whatever. We don't necessarily follow that because we believe that is an element of worship, giving together. And that's why we sing together because we're corporately giving. It's not just the individual giving, but the body of Christ giving together. So we respond together. Um, and it's a great time also to offer prayers to the Lord as, as, we, are, as we are collecting uh, the offerings and so on. So it's an element of worship there as described in um, Larger Catechism 108. Any questions? So these are the ordinary Elements of worship, singing, praying, giving, reading, eating, listening, and then, you know, getting wet <laughs> in, in, in baptism. So um, these are the things that we do ordinarily. We don't have to have a special occasion for it. We don't have to call for it specially. It's just it's stuff that you do on the Lord's Day, you know. Now, baptism depends on having somebody to be baptized, not mandated that every single service you have a, a baptism. 
But it's not extraordinary. It's not something the, the session has to vote to add. It's just something that happens as the ordinary worship of God. Any questions on the ordinary worship of God before we move on to the not ordinary or the occasional? All right, so not only to the, that paragraph talks about what we do every Sunday, but also something that uh, is not done all the, all the time that is uh, uh, occasional. One of the things it says is oaths and vows. Now, so that we keep straight in our mind, according to the confession, an oath is a promise to somebody else calling God as a witness, and a vow is a promise directly to God. So those are the, the, how those two are distinguished. So often we call them married vows, but they should be technically called married, marriage oaths because you're actually promising something to each other, calling God as, as a witness. Can you think of occasions where oaths and vows are part of the worship of God? On the Lord's Day, on Sunday? Yesterday. Well, yesterday was Saturday. Oh. So, <laughs> but it's true, you know, if you had a wedding. You know, which actually, by the time the confession, when the Thomas Confession was, was written, weddings, if they happen in the church, would be like a little five-minute thing at the end of the worship service. Jim? Membership, yes. Promises are made. Those are made um, during the service of God. What else? There is, there is at least one more that I can think. Okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Yes, ordaining and installing elders and officers of the church. That's done also in the worship service of the Lord by oaths and vows as well. If you want to read more about uh, oaths and vows, you can read the very next chapter in the Confession, 22. It's all about that. And then the, it also lists fastings as an occasional thing um, to do. So it's very regular. It was a regular uh, thing for the church to call for fastings. Now, I tend to think that that's better to leave that to the private worship of God, uh, especially um, throughout the scripture seems to be something that is something that the individual does. Um, it might be encouraged by the church, but should not be mandated by, by the church. But others think that that could be something that can be mandated or at least encouraged strongly by the church. We've, I don't think we've ever done this at this church that I can remember. Uh, you can remember any time where we... You know, uh, in, you know, saying today is going to be a day of fast. Uh, we're pretty good at saying de- uh, declaring days of feasting, but not necessarily uh, <laughs> days of, of, of fasting. But the confession at least lists fasting as part of the occasional public worship of God. And then they also say calling for special thanksgiving uh, in, in different times in the life of the church and the country and so on. Any questions about the occasional uh, worship of God listed in that paragraph 5? Yes, Lewis. Would you give me an example of a vow? Yes. Um, I'll give an example of, of, of uh, a hasty vow. Uh, um, Japheth, the judge, and said, Lord, if you give me victory in this war, I will offer to you the first thing that comes out of my house. Remember that? No, I can't 
in the book, in the book of Judges, you can read of Japheth. And, uh, and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter. And, uh, and uh, so she, she has to be dedicated to the service of the Lord all her life and so on. Um, uh, you've heard the name Samson. He's not a judge. His parents also vowed to the Lord that uh, he would be, that, uh, that Samson would be his. And uh, what later on became known as a Nazarite vow. So that's a promise to um, the Lord. So that's, that's a kind of vow. That, that, that those are examples of, of vows. And you have to be very careful to, not to make any hasty promises to the Lord because whatever you promise the Lord, you're bound to keep unless the very thing you promise is unlawful. That is, according to the Bible. Right? I promise you know, to kill my husband if my pie tastes good. Well, killing your husband is like, sorry, Keith. <laughs> it's an unlawful promise. So, you know, so you're not bound by that. But you might face church discipline if you keep on with the, that thinking sort of thing. So, yeah. Yes? It really comes important with Catholicism and yeah. how you raise your children. Yeah. The sin is in making that yeah. covenant yeah. Yeah, so, so that's really the main reason why there's that chapter in the Confession, because remember the context, Roman Catholicism was super strong in Europe, and, and um, the Puritans are fighting, fight, fighting against a resurgence of, of um, Anglo-Catholic uh, tradition in the Church of England. So they have to address these things, where in the Roman, in the Roman Catholic Church it's super common to make vows. Uh, no. To, to be bargaining with God. God, if you do this, I'll do this. Kind of thing. So they say, okay, let's think, think of biblically about this. What does the Bible teach concerning actual promises to God? Right? Yes. Um, in paragraph 5 where it says, besides um, upon special occasions which are in their several times and seasons, is it the officials of the church who decide? Correct. And that's yes. Would... Yes. So, yeah, this the, when those should be done is, is, is decided by the church because it's, it's talking about the public, the corporate worship of the church, and that's led by the elders of the church. So they could never happen. It'd be okay because you. Yes. Okay. Yes. Any other questions on that? All right. So as you continue, paragraph six talks about unlawful worship, the things that you should not do in worship. It says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or to words which is directed. So what, what's that talking about? So the, the building itself doesn't make it worship or not worship, right? And again, remember the context when the Catholic Church says you can only worship God in, a, in, in uh, specific, determined buildings uh, as, as promoted to the church. For example, to, even today, marriage is only true marriage in the Roman Catholic view if you get married in a Catholic church. If you want to get married as a Catholic in a different place, you, get, you have to get special permission from the bishop to have the... the marriage take place on a different building than the, the particular parish, 
So that's it. And then facing a particular direction. Now some people say, oh, facing Jerusalem. But I think here they actually are addressing early Muslim influence in Europe. Because remember, southern Spain is essentially Muslim. And uh, so then you have to only worship God or pray facing east toward Mecca. And that don't say that's not necessarily the case as well. So the place, the building, the address is not doesn't necessarily dictate whether you are worshiping God corporately or not. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and in truth, as in private families daily and, and in secret each one by himself, so more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or, or providence, calleth thereunto. So two worships not attached to any special place. Can you think of a passage in the Bible that, that teaches that very clearly? That, that not yes. Just a hint, it has to be the New Testament, by the way. So, yes, and I agree with that, but that's a providential witness. Uh, there are passages in the New Testament that clearly say that that's not the case. So, that's a passage about church discipline, but yes, it talks about two or three being gathered, so not necessarily the building, but the people. But it's, it's so clear, and you know it, you just have to think about it. What? What is that, Benita? Okay, so again, this is the people, but in John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. Right? And she keeps on trying to derail the conversation, to jump from here to there, to, to, from, from the well to worship to scatology. And Jesus said, okay, you want to go there? Fine with me. It just points back to me anyway, so let's go there. But she remembers, she says, she says, no, no, no. So let's just agree to disagree. You guys worship in Jerusalem. We worship at Mount Gerasim in these mountains. And that's fine. And Jesus says, no, that's coming there now is. That really the place where you worship doesn't matter because God seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. That God is interested in the heart of the worshiper than more instead of the location of the, the worship. Um, so true worship, spiritual worship, as John 4, 24 tells us, and God requires personal, family, and public worship to take place. He's not as much as concerned the address as they're concerned about the people and the people's heart as they worship Him. Any questions on that? When the, uh, so the, 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 the official beginning of Presbyterianism in the United States is um, considered to be 1706. You know why? It was the last time the Pirates won a World, world uh, Series. No, that's not, the, that's not true. <laughs> Hopefully there's no Pittsburgh fans here. Uh, no, 1706 is when uh, the first Presbytery was established in Philadelphia. Uh, by McKimmy. So that's the beginning. And in 1729, that adopted, they adopted the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. And then they also wrote a directory of worship, meaning instructions on how to worship to help their various church and people worship. 
And it, they say this, they say, besides the public worship in congregations, it is indispensable, uh, the indispensable duty of each person, alone in secret and in, of every family by itself in private, to pray and worship God. Secret, secret worship is the most plainly enjoyed by our Lord. In this duty, everyone apart by himself is to spend some time in prayer, reading the scriptures, holy meditation, serious self-examination. Family worship, which ought to be performed by every family, ordinarily morning and evening, consists in prayer, reading the scriptures, and singing praises. And I put up here not to say that, oh, you need to follow exactly this, but to show that this has been part of the DNA of the Presbyterian Church here, which is, which is a reflection of what the church has done throughout the world, that public and private worship are part of the core of what it means to be a Christian. Any questions on that or comments? So sometimes when we say we don't have time for personal worship, or the private worship, we are actually saying is that we don't think of it as a priority in our lives. Uh, that uh, some, some ta- somehow we think that oh, I just didn't have, t- I don't have time to do that. Is the get out of jail free card? Oh, oh, okay. Oh man, I guess no argument I can make from the Bible now matters because she or he just don't have time to worship God privately. But most of the time, when we say we don't have time, is what we're actually saying is that we don't have time because we don't think it's important. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we say, what we do is what demonstrates what we think is important. Okay? How we spend... This is kind of one of those uh, common sense things. How we spend our money and how we spend our time. Those two things communicate what we think is important. We may say that worshiping God is our most important thing to be blue in the face, face, but if we're not spending time on that, we're not, that's not important to us. Because we find time to do everything else that we truly think is important. Um, we find time to watch TV, to watch movies, to work out, to work, like for money. Oh, that's important. Sure, you could choose not to eat. That's fine, too. I mean, it's a choice you have. I'm not saying you have to do that, but I'm just saying we think these things are important, so... We do them, and family worship is also as important as eating. Especially if we want our children to be faithful to the Lord. If that's not important to you, then that's sad. But if we want our children to be faithful to the Lord, family worship is important, and personal worship is important as well. These three forms of worship public, private, and private dividing personal and family uh, must not be neglected. Uh, they all are involved in this statement. We tend to use to, to focus on this for the public worship of God, and that's true. But I think it, it's about worship in general as well as a private worship as well. We forsake it, we're in danger of forsaking Christ. That's why the, the end of the, the rest of the chapter goes. It's one of the strongest warnings in the book of Hebrews that we forsake worshiping God we are in danger of forsaking Christ himself. Any questions on that? Okay, so now we're going to start talking about the Sabbath more specifically in paragraph 7. 
So all this is in preparation to come to paragraph 7. It reads this way. As it is the law of nature that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in His word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding on all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day, and is, so, and is to be continued to the end of the world as a Christian Sabbath. So we're coming closer to answering the question that Heather asked last week. Doesn't mean we're going to get to it today, Heather, but there is hope that we are getting to it. But before we get into it, before we just break it apart and look at what different parts mean, let's just run through it and see what do you think. What does it mean when it says, it is, as it is the, the law of nature, that in general a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God? What is, what is the confession teaching us in this clause? Correct. That uh, just nature itself, our nature and the creation, created order points to the fact that God is to be worshipped. How do we know that? How do we know that to be true? Where? Right, but even general revelation, we only know things about it because the Bible says something about it, right? Genesis. Genesis. Right, so even the pattern of how creation was done, uh, God rests in the seventh day, so that's kind of built in in creation. What else? Right, Romans 1, Romans 1, 20-ish, somewhere around there, where the, the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen. And that's important, not veiled, not in a complicated way, not super hidden at the center of Mount Rainier, but clearly seen. And, and even though humanity suppresses that clear revelation of God, it can't, humanity can't help but worship God. And that's why idolatry comes from in all places. Right? So nature, it's the, our own nature and, na- and general revelation itself shows us that there's a need to worship God and that God should, should be worshipped. There's, uh, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that that's the, same, that's the case. Two in particular, in the westward expansion, so that's when people are coming to the west side of the United States. People who tr- chose to travel seven days a week without a break did not arrive into the destination any faster than people that stopped on Sundays because their animals could not handle the journey. That's one. And the other one is the uh, French Revolution. You've ever heard, you've heard of French? One of the things they, they, they were adamant against was anything Christian. And they wanted to, to bring everything to a decimal base. So math is in every, everything. Do you know what a decimal base is? Everything's a multiple of 10. So they said uh, we should use meters and kilometers. They were right. No, that's actually easier to do things. But they also said the week should be 10 days. 
So 10 days, no, nine you work, one you rest. And that didn't last very long because they just couldn't keep up. The animals, the people who work. So they had to revert to seven days. So the seven-day week is not even a, just a, um, a agreed-upon norm. It's just how things work. It's built in in creation. All right, so you got that. So, but he says, not just in creation, his word, by a positive, well, what does that mean? Okay, it sounds like that. And that's how no, I think most of us would read, but there's a technical term for the, for the word positive when um, applied to the law of God. It means it was for people at the time, it was positive, we have case laws, and, but then he says, yes, that it's moral as well. Now, it's not just something that you do because God said so. There's a moral value to the Sabbath. Right? For example... Another example of a positive law is wearing mixed fabric, in the Old Testament at least, wearing, wearing mixed fabric. Was that something morally wrong about the like, intrinsic? Were, were you attacking the nature of God by wearing a polyester? Well, some people would say that that, that is actually very <laughs> offensive. But uh, wearing a fabric that was a, a mix of two different fibers? No, so that's a positive law. It's wrong because God said so. But it says the, the, the Sabbath is not just that. It's also a moral. It, it, if you break the Sabbath, you're actually attacking the very nature of God. It's a moral, moral law as well. And perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages. That's part. Now, I think so far, still with us, Christianity, most of Christianity, yep, yep, yep. What? Perpetual? No, 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 no. That little page between the Old Testament and the New Testament denies that Sabbath should continue, right? Somehow, because now we're in the New Testament, the Sabbath is not for us anymore. The problem we run with that is there's those other nine pesky commandments that we tend to think they are perpetual. I don't see anybody arguing, you know what, we're in the New Testament, murdering's okay now. Uh, so... And then they say, well, but murder is mentioned in the New Testament as being wrong and the Sabbath is not. Just wait. You're going to see that the Sabbath is actually the, 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 the subject on which Jesus taught the most often. So, that and hell. Those are the two most popular subjects with Jesus, was the Sabbath and hell. Uh, so, for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world of the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and then from the resurrection of Christ to the last days is the... Um, the first day of the week, the day we call Sunday. All right. So here's a general overview of the Sabbath. And then we're going to start ordering next week to dive into more specifically what each one of these clauses mean, starting actually with the importance of the Sabbath, bringing the scriptures from the Old and New Testament into it for us to see that the Sabbath is an important thing, not just for the people of the Old Testament, but for the people of God in perpetuity, not just at the particular time, but until the Lord returns. And heaven itself, the future of our future, is, is, is considered the Sabbath as well. There's still a, a Sabbath rest remaining for us, as Hebrews 4 tells us.
Any other, any last comments or questions before we close? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you're good to us. We thank you for this good gift of the Sabbath day. We pray that we would embrace it for your glory and for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.